Okay, good evening everyone. Welcome to our evening Dhamma. Saturday. We have some guests, people I don't know. Did you bring all these people? Uh, friends of Jason. Are they friends or family or? So meditators, cool. welcome. So Saturday nights we study, uh, right now we're studying the, the discourses of the Buddha as we find in very old texts. This is, this text is called the Majjhima Nikaya, the portion or section of the Buddhist teachings that are middle length. So they're not very long, but they're also not very short. Some are still longer than others. And tonight we're looking at number 38. There's 152 of them. So we're not going through all of them, we're skipping, but we're going through the book. Number 38 is another one of these ones that are particularly uh, interesting or of interest to us as meditators practicing insight meditation, mindfulness meditation. Uh, so there's not a lot of different concepts here, but the concepts or the teachings in this discourse are, you might say, profound, uh, important, abstruse, in some ways a little bit difficult. So we'll go through it. I'm, I'm going to simplify it, of course. If you want the full, the full, uh, the full course meal, you have to go and read it yourself. But I think it's useful to summarize it, to simplify it, because then when you, if you do go and read it, uh, you sort of have a, 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 you get a sense of the bigger picture, of the whole picture. But we're mostly concerned now is how it's applicable and how we make use of it as meditators. Without worrying too much about the theory, how can we make it practical? Or what's practical about it? So the setting, first, um, this sutta was taught in regards to a monk named Sati. Sati, not to be confused with Sati. There's a long A, Sati. I don't really remember what Sati means, but that was his name. And he was the son of a fisherman, which I think is important it's not really important, but it's what importance it has comes from two uh, pieces of information. First of all, fish people who fish are are generally of dubious ethics, right? They're well, not dubious. In fact, there's nothing dubious about it. They're murderers. But there's something sketchy beyond that. But the fact that that he was 
it's sketchy because he was born into a family of fish of people who who kill fish it's there's already some suspicion here i think that's a reason for including it the other other reason we'll get to at the very end of the sutta um, the reason why it's included that he was the son of a fisherman. Uh, and so this monk came up with a view. This view came to him. It arose, a pernicious view arose in him. And his view was thus. As I understand the teaching of the Buddha, it is the same consciousness that runs and wanders through the round of rebirths, not another. So somehow he got the idea that the Buddha taught a soul, certainly the Buddha taught a life after death, but that the Buddha taught about a soul, what we now would call a soul, a consciousness, an awareness that continues, not just from moment to moment, but from life to life. And so the story is, the monks come to him and say, is it true that you have this, you hold on to this view? Say, yes, that's how I understand the Buddha's teaching. I say, that's not true, that's not what the, how the Buddha teaches. And so finally they dragged him before the Buddha. Well, they went to the Buddha and told the Buddha about it. It's a big deal, you know. Monks hold wrong views and start spreading them and, and uh, it, talking about them. There may, they may convince others of their wrong views and then that can be quite a, quite to the detriment not only of those individual people but to the Buddha's teaching as a whole wrong view, pernicious view here, but, but let's call it what it is, it's wrong view. And so the Buddha, is this true that you believe this? He's, and, and then he begins this sutta to explain why it's wrong view. So first of all, let's talk a little bit about wrong view, because it's important, uh, especially in the context of this sutta. So something is a wrong view. What does this mean? I mean, this should immediately raise flags well. The skeptic in us all says, who's to say what's right and wrong? What's wrong? Why, why, does, why does someone get to say that his view is wrong? So a view is wrong. It's wrong, I guess, for, well, really only one reason, but there's two parts to it. First, it's wrong simply because it, it is uh, inconsistent with reality, right? For example, there's lots of wrong views uh, in, a, in a conventional sense. If I say cyanide is, is good for your health, and if you drink lots of it, your body will become healthier and you'll live a long life, that's a, a terrible view. and it, It's very wrong. So it's wrong because it's just flat out wrong. If you drink even a small amount of cyanide, I think you die pretty quickly. 
the body doesn't become healthier, get sick and die. Um, the second, so it's wrong, but it's also a bad view to have, right? So that a view can be wrong not just because it's out of touch with reality. If I say um, London is the capital of France, well, it's wrong. And if I have the view that that's true, it's not really a view, but... Um, suppose I have yeah some some view of reality there's some views that aren't really bad you know they're wrong but they're not going to have far-reaching consequences in your life they might make people laugh at you for example but uh, beyond that they're, they're not that terrible so wrong is in two senses that that's really all it's about so the Buddha makes a claim and he always has in all his teachings he claims that the view of this soul is wrong view. And so he's mainly going to focus on why it's, uh, why it's out of touch with reality. I think it's important to understand why he calls it a pernicious view is for the other reason. This is a wrong view, something that's not just not true, that has far-reaching consequences. In fact, it seems to be uh, one of the most important wrong views as far as its consequences. Because there are wrong views about physical health, but this is, I think you could say, this is the sort of wrong view that affects one's mental health. And the Buddha pinpointed this. See, in many religious teachings at the time, there was a focus on craving, on desire. It seems to be a, not just a Buddhist concept, but at the time people understood, religious people understood that desire was ruining the world. I mean, now we, we, we say things like materialism, but we mean the same thing, really. If you look at the world, it's our craving and our desire, our greed. Our greed as human beings We'd have to pinpoint it as one of the most significant causes of our own ruin as as people, as families, as societies, as as a as a human as the human race. But the Buddha went deeper than that and said, why is it that? Why is it that people give rise to this craving? And he saw that, I mean, what we should all see is that without this, without this concept of self, The, the 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 cultivation of craving has no has no base it's like you've taken away the soil in with within which it can grow it, when we talk about wanting something we have a sense of i want now it is possible to want things without having a sense of self but it's not really possible to to cultivate it to make it grow 
So a person who has done away with this sense of self, the idea is that even though they might have wanting just because it's habitual to want, they won't they won't cultivate it, they won't grow it. Because for it to grow it has to be a, there has to be a sense of, of me and mine. There has to be a sense this sense of of uh, entities and beings and, and possessions. So he saw that well craving is things something that we do. We want this and we want that, it's true. But it's this view of self, it's a it's what is the glue or the, the soil. Now, I think you might argue, in fact, you might argue, in fact, that the, the concept of a soul is, it's much like the concept of a god. Um, it's really like any, it's really the epitome of, a, of this idea of a concept. We talk about the concept of a soul. I think most people in the world believe they have a soul, if if not religiously. They have just a sense of it. There's me and there's I. Right, and of course, this is what gives rise to arrogance, conceit, and preference, and and personality belief. I am this sort of person. I am that sort of person. And the belief in personalities of others, you're a bad person, you're a good person. That's what it means to conceit. Someone calls you ugly or fat or tall or short or dark or pale or stupid, smart, beautiful, wise. Clever, you know. Why do these why do these adjectives affect us so strongly? It's only because of self. Um, but but these concepts you can't really say that they're they're out of touch with rea or they're they're wrong in the sense of they don't um, play out in reality or they, they go against reality. Like the idea of a god or a soul, it's so pernicious and it lasts. It's not something that is likely to ever leave the world because you can't really disprove it. You can't really disprove it. I'm, I'm, I have to be careful here because you can't disprove it in the sense that it exists in, in a realm of, of thought alone. If I think about it, I think, well, when I was young, it was me thinking, and there was thinking, and it's still me thinking, it's not somebody else thinking. So there is a me, there is an I, right? I can, If I have those thoughts and those beliefs, it's true. I mean, it, it or, or it's, it is easy to have the appearance of being true. And God is the same. If I say God is 
what's you know running the world and so on it's very hard to disprove that now i th i think there's no question no not i think that's not to say that it's not possible and more importantly more importantly than disproving it is well first of all we show that it's uh, it's harmful that these these uh, that these views are are problematic and they are an easy they're an easy cause for stress and suffering but more importantly they have they have at the very least you can say they have nothing to do with reality and this is another aspect of wrong view is that it distracts you if you have a belief in um, say you have a belief in the flying spaghetti monster and there's this flying spaghetti monster that uh, you know is is reading your mind and can you know all of your life is going to be influenced by this mythical or this mythical this this heavenly being and so as a result you 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 align your life with those views and even if you're if you're taught these things from a child you you grow up believing them and and it changes your the way you live your life it affects the way you, you live your life quite profoundly and it distracts you from the momentary experience what what we learn as meditators to be reality and this is i think why meditation in the beginning is such a uh, such a shock it's like uncovering something that was right in front of you the whole time and realizing how how lost you were how lost we become in in this wrong view so the soul is 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 one such view if you have this belief in the soul continuing on it prevents you from seeing what's really going on it, it's totally unconnected with what's really going on and that is consciousness is arising momentarily so the buddha asks the most pertinent and this is i say this all because the buddha asks a question which makes me think the, the buddha doesn't say you're wrong and well, he does say you're wrong but but the first thing he says when sat sati comes and spouts this view he asks what is that consciousness this consciousness that continues what is it and his implication there he's setting him up i mean this is a, the way socrates did things as well right you ask questions the buddha was i think Honestly, and, and I'm, I'm a biased source, but the Buddha was much better at it than Socrates. Some of the questions of Socrates I can't understand, and they don't seem that profound to me. But the Buddha asks, what is that consciousness? And the implication here is that, what the heck are you talking about? You know, you're, you're talking about something that is... Um, has no basis in reality so you ask about people's views and and it comes to it comes out that they're just spouting nonsense in, in this case 
But his answer, he gives an answer. He says that consciousness is the thing that speaks and feels and experiences. That's what experiences the results of of your deeds. You do good things, it's what experiences it. So Vedakata, this is the being that, that experiences. Right? It's me who feels, right? It's in many ways it's just the wrong way of or it's a it's a certain way of dis of speaking about things. We speak about things in our whole language. I feel pain. I feel happy. Our whole every language pretty much is it has a subject, an object, and a verb, or a subject, verb, and an object, that kind of thing. It's sort of universal the way human beings think about things. Maybe why we can't talk with with dolphins and whales because they may think of things quite differently. Pro unlikely, they probably have a view of self as well, but it's all about the subject, the, th the doer, right? And so it's, it's quite so a surprise or it's quite a change and, and it forces you to change your, your, your outlook, to think of things as simply arising, which is what we come to see in meditation, that really a better way to speak about it is not, it's nonsensical, right? When you say, I feel pain, it's really, it's an abstract, it's, it's referring to the fact that, well, you're not experiencing this pain, right? But the experience has nothing to do with that. The experience is pain. Pain is a reality. That's the essence of, of uh, reality of experience. The essence of, well, the essence of nature reality is the arising of experiences, not someone experiencing them. And so he chastises this monk, and then he turns to the, the other monks and he says, you, do you agree with this guy? And no, no. And the Buddha says, because consciousness, they, they say, you know, we, we've heard from the Buddha that consciousness is dependently arisen. And so I think, again, the biggest, the most important point of this discourse is not who's right or what's right it's more about what's useful what's helpful what is what, what is and and even deeper what's really going on because any talk that we might have about self or soul is it puts the mind in an abstract state where you're now thinking about things instead of living being you're out of touch with reality. It is deeper reality that's going on all the time. It's not a secret reality, but it's hidden from us because we're so caught up in our views and beliefs of self. And so when I t when we teach, when the Buddha taught about non-self and and that this continuous consciousness that the soul is all rubbish, people would become quite distressed because they built their whole 
we build our whole paradigm of our whole worldviews up on this. We 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 distract ourselves from what's really going on. Our whole language and culture and society and everything is is based on this concept or these concepts of self and me, mine, I. And it's 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 categorically or it's decisively different, decidedly different from what's really going on, which is experiences. Simple experience. So it's a much better way of looking at things, of talking about things, to say pain arises and ceases. Consciousness arises and ceases. And so he says consciousness is, is arises from conditions. There are causes. Why why there is seeing, why there is hearing is because of many factors. So there will be uh, light based on light and the eye, then there arises what we call eye consciousness. I mean, this is a simple way of describing things without adding anything that isn't readily apparent. The subject isn't readily apparent. When you're sitting here, and you are sitting here, uh, you can see what arises. There will arise hearing, an experience of hearing my voice. And this is why in mindfulness we, we, um, we practice taking our experiences as an object. So when you hear, you would say to yourself, hearing, hearing. And as you do that, you become aware of this. Yes, it's true. It's the way it is. Hearing arises. You can do that with my voice. As you listen to my voice, just say hearing, hearing. It's a good way to listen to a Dhamma talk. If you ha have pain and you say to yourself, pain, pain. If you just focus on the pain in that way, you can see the pain comes and it goes. What's real is pain, an experience of pain. And so he talks about how consciousness arises based on conditions. Conditions are important, so arising and ceasing is important, but conditions are also important. I think if I'd have to say arising and ceasing is more important. I'll explain these two terms. But dependently dependent origination. Dependent origination I think is is what leads to arising and ceasing. And to so to explain because um The consequences of not seeing, the consequences of not seeing reality as it is, and and it's, it sounds very very profound with that sort of statement. It's a very uh, hot, deep statement, and it is, but it's also very simple. Seeing reality as it is is just what we do when we're mindful. When you watch the pain and say pain, pain, at that moment you're seeing 
to some extent reality as it is now it's not very clear because likely unless you're very good at it when you first begin it's probably not very clear but this is the beginning of seeing things as they are the consequences of not doing that is the misapprehension this idea of self uh, the idea of me and mine the idea of familiarity and the craving the desire for certain experiences and the aversion towards other certain experiences and so this is really the the one of the first things that you begin to see when you when you begin to meditate is that this is what we're doing to ourselves that it's based on first of all based on our attachments our desires and our aversions that we're causing stress for ourselves we're creating disappointment we're creating dissatisfaction we're creating sadness despair all sorts of depression and all sorts of problems because we well, because of wanting things, first of all, wanting things that we can't have. But again, deeper than that. Because we see them as me, as mine. Because we have a sense, because, well, in, in many different ways, we're caught up in concepts. Money as a concept. Now, concepts aren't bad in and of themselves. It's getting caught up in them. The concept of money I have so much money I don't have any money I have I wish I had lots of money the concept of food I want a big steak or spaghetti or pizza or uh, cheesecake I don't know why it always comes back to cheesecake I say that and then everyone brings me cheesecake. I'm not particularly... No, it's a cheesecake, isn't it? You don't have to bring me cheesecake. It doesn't make me happier to have cheesecake. People bring me food. That's why I say that. Um, but cheesecake is something people... Some people are quite enamored with. Uh, but this, these are concepts. You get caught up in these concepts and they cause you... And it causes you anxiousness, addiction, of course, first of all. But addiction doesn't make you happier. It makes you more irritable, more sensitive to not getting your way. I mean, look at children. We spoil our kids most often and because it makes them quiet. They get what they want and they're quiet. But when they don't get what they want, they suffer. And so really growing up is a lot about suffering. It's about realizing that you can't always get what you want. And so to some extent we do that. It's just a shame that we don't realize, for the most part, that that's an important principle to live by. That you can't always get what you want, and, and therefore wanting isn't something that's actually going to be useful to us. So we see, we see causes, we see cause and effect. 
we can see the cause and effect of meditation if you're mindful your mind is suddenly relieved it's released from this burden from this constant oppression of wanting and needing and, and not getting what you want having to go through the drudgery of life just to get moments of satisfaction and so the Buddha goes into a long discourse on, on dependent origination not long but he goes quite detailed back and forth and talks about nutriment nourishment I'm just going to go base. I'm just going to condense it down to an opportunity to talk about dependent origination. We'll give it in its classical form. So again, it comes down to ignorance. If you have ignorance, and again, ignorance is not ignorance of Buddhism or you know ignorance because you're not Buddhist. It's just really not seeing things as they are. Again, it's this state of having everything covered up this this obvious and readily apparent reality being totally invisible to us because we're lost in in our conception of things and because of that because of that well we 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 act we act to get what we want. Sometimes we do bad things, stealing and killing and lying and cheating and manipulating and all that to get what we want. Sometimes we do good things. It's really quite random, I suppose. I mean, some lifetimes, I guess, were good people. Probably sometimes you look at some people and they were maybe good for a while, but they fell in with bad company or a shame that we can't see the whole arc of our l lifetime after lifetime we'd see, we'd see all this it would really be an eye opener to see what, what you did in your past life right people are so keen when they hear learn about Buddhism it's one of the most interesting things wouldn't it be I wish I could remember my past life it's exciting when you to think of who I was in my past life again this is very much ego based right because we're self-conscious and we're attached to this self and so we identify with those past moments that are gone but we do, we do good and we do bad things and we've done this apparently since time immemorial And because of that, because of that, well, we're, because of that, we're born again. Because of that, there arises consciousness. Now, how does that work? So the first part of dependent origination is, I mean, it's easiest to understand as, as just a summary of things. How it goes from life to life. We, we do things, we act out good or bad things and as a res as a result as a result it affects our experiences it's really the easiest way to understand it so we talk about these deeds giving rise to consciousness well that's what it means if i hit someone 
then I'm going to experience different realities than if I hadn't, if I had kept my hands to myself and practiced loving-kindness instead. If I steal, if I lie, if I get angry, my consciousness, my moments of consciousness that result, that follow, are going to be different. Maybe I'll feel guilty afterwards. I said something angry to someone and then I feel guilty. That only came, that consciousness, that awareness, that experience, only came because I did that rather unpleasant deed. If I'm kind to someone, then I'll feel happy afterwards. That, that will be the experience that comes following it. So that's how it leads to consciousness. I mean, ultimately it means it's what's going to lead to, uh, to being born again. So it's going to lead, but really that's just an extension. It, it, it's what leads us to becoming whatever we are. So our, our state, the state of the world today is really understood in Buddhism as consciousness. We have created very specific types of consciousness where, aware, where we're aware of things differently than we were before. We have to experience things differently than before. We experience cancer more often than before. So there's experiences of having cancer. We experience um, stress, headaches probably more than we did before, respiratory problems. Uh, there are experiences that, again, I'm trying to argue as, as relating to greed, relating to our actions as human beings. We have no one to blame but ourselves that we're in this situation as a human race. If you want to blame other people and say, I'm not to blame, well, that's fine. But I perhaps wouldn't agree on the large scale, but, but it, it just means that there are causes Causally origin, causally origin, causally arisen. And the, the so the point is that's what's important. This idea of the soul continuing, it's just a distraction. That's nothing to do with what's really going on. That's how you should understand non-self and the idea that there is no soul. As being rather than saying being wrong which is really what it means it's outside of the realm of reality it's nothing to do with reality it's a better way of understanding it as being wrong so believe it if you want it doesn't help in fact it sets you up for lots of problems is the idea egotism, conceit and so on okay so because of consciousness there will arise rebirth and there will arise basically the six senses. So, so you have body and mind, really. As human beings, we have the physical and the mental. Not just body, but our experience of the world around us. So we experience soft and hard and heat and cold. We experience the stiffness in the body and the release of the stiffness when we relax. These experiences, you know, these are physical. 
and then the, and the mental is the experience of them, the mind that is aware of not only seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, uh, but also feeling, also the physical feeling. And that's how our that's that's really the the framework of reality. That reality is six things: seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, and thinking. And this is the framework of insight meditation. This is what we are aiming to focus on and come to understand. And this is the second um, teaching. Remember I said there are two. There's causality and then there's arising and ceasing. The, the real goal, I suppose, in a worldly sense or in a mundane sense in Buddhism is to see that Uh, to see quite simply that things arise and cease. That's not something you have to conceive or understand of intellectually. I mean, it's really as simple as it sounds. Because what it means, a person who experiences are what we call arise, uh, you know, that that all things arise and cease, is experiencing reality. What 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 we are experiencing right now it's the, the simplest and the most pure and natural state of existence it's not some hard to understand or some esoteric practice right now we're sitting and we're feeling and we're thinking and we're seeing and hearing and so on all of these, thi these things are happening. This is what's real. But because of, and again, because, because of causes and conditions, we aren't seeing that. We're caught up in the past. We're caught up in the future. We're caught up in other places, other people, our problems, you know, ourselves, our future, our past, our present. We're caught up with them. And so what the Buddha is describing here is, is what's really going on. And all it takes, all, you, you're tr all we try to do in Buddhism, really, is to reduce our, our activity, or, or maybe focus, focus our minds until we see Everything, things that exist, arise and cease. It's not something you think to yourself, oh, hey, look at the, everything arises and ceases. That's not how it is. What it means is you're experiencing. Seeing is seeing. Hearing is hearing. Smelling is smelling. Feeling is feeling. Thinking is thinking. It's the most pure state because there's no judging. There's no reacting. There's no clinging, there's no craving, there's no identifying, there's no abstract theories about, well, I believe this, I believe that. It just is. And I think it has to be impressed because I don't think it's readily apparent if you haven't done this. 
that the result is so incredibly powerful and profound that it changes the very essence of who you are, right? It changes your outlook on life. It changes so many things about the very fabric of reality seems to have been torn asunder. And so much illusion is just washed away as that. All the problems and the concerns that you had, it's not that you solved them, it's that you realized they weren't real. They were just distracted, distracted distractions. Anyway, I'm taking a long time to go through this, but I think it's important. See, there's a lot in here. Dependent origination, I think you could probably, if you were very smart, you could talk about it for days. Um, but I'm going to try to sum this up. I don't want to take too much time with talk. Anyway, so based on experience, and because we're not seeing experience clearly, because of our ignorance, there arises craving. Because of craving, there arises clinging. Because of clinging, there arises becoming. We cultivate habits. We become something. Right? We commit to things and we create experiences. If I want a big house, I read somewhere today someone bought a house for almost a million dollars. And, uh, and then their son died. It was just uh, listening to this story, and then the housing market fell, and I don't know. I mean, it's quite complicated, but there's so much involvement there. I'm not criticizing this person. In fact, I think they had some fairly good intentions, but I think they probably also had quite a bit of greed that made them jump at the chance at buying something that they couldn't really afford. And and then, of course, the reminder of impermanence, to, to buy something like that, thinking, hey, it'll be good for me and my son, and then their son dies. I mean, it's horrible, and you wouldn't want it to happen to anyone, but this is how life works. If not now, then later, or if not in this way, then in another way, change. The very nature of reality is uncertain. And so we distract ourselves with our desires and so on. Anyway, we build up debt is a big example. We build up this commitment. We get married or we get involved with other people. And this gives rise to what we call becoming. And ultimately, it's what makes us want to be born again when we die. When we die, the clinging that's left over, probably a lot if we haven't done any meditation, that clinging is immediately, it makes us think, it's, it's like as though when you die, you're presented, hey, here's a, here's a newborn, here's a new fetus, you want to try it, you want to do it again? It's like, yes, it's like we jump at it, we're so blind. And if you thought about it, I mean, life isn't, you might want to at least hesitate and think, life wasn't completely happy, you know. But because we're always thinking about happiness, happiness, finding happiness, 
we ignore that. I, I mean, I think even intellectually, we, when you think about the idea of being born again, oh good, I can try again and get all sorts of good things again, because we don't think about the bad stuff. The, the point is not to say exact, precisely that being born again is bad. It's something an enlightened being would never wish to be born again. But that doesn't mean we should f fixate on this because it's hard for us to fixate on it. It's hard to think about not being born again, not wanting to be born again. The only way is if you were enlightened. Everyone else is going to be born again. But it's a statement of fact that this is the way things work. And so the Buddha jumps right to the end. And I, I'm probably going to skip some of the rest of the sutta. I don't want to take too much time. But he, he, he jumps right to what's really important by saying that when you have no more craving, you won't be born again. There will be no more consciousness, right? And remember, this is all about this consciousness that doesn't continue. It's something that you give rise to experiences and experiences cease when you have no more creating them when you no longer cultivate them um, but I think it's also useful to point out that there's a lot in the middle and if you because it's so foreign to think about that but if you think about the process to get there what it means is that all these experiences that we have to go through that are unpleasant. Right? Like a person who is, say, a thief, someone who steals from other people is going to have all sorts of bad experiences as a karmic result. In this life, in the next life, all of those experiences stop when they stop stealing. I mean, don't stop, but right, they, they're, they're not going to continue in perpetuity because well, you've stopped creating the conditions for them and that's really how it looks it's this gradual removing of experiences you start to see well you know that experience isn't worth striving for why why am i stealing again right this isn't bringing me happiness why am i getting angry again you you observe the process of getting angry, seeing it arising and ceasing and seeing it causing stress and suffering. And you lose all interest in getting angry or craving this, craving that. You crave cheesecake and then you eat cheesecake and then you're full. It didn't make you happier. I had an argument, I was talking about this, I had an argument with someone about sweets and uh, it's really funny because, I mean, we just have the wrong way of looking at, at reality. I mean, you would say, sweet things make me happy, right? And it seems obvious because after you have the sweet thing, there's a feeling of pleasure. But I mean, at the very least, we can point out the fact that it doesn't, we can say there's a difference between being happy in that moment and being happy, as in I, the self, right? Not the conceptually. With you know, I'm I'm joking because we just talked about there not being a self, but about being generally happy, being able to say I'm happy, 
because this person who argued and he was not very happy about my arguing and then got very angry and I mean that really is the point is that people who people well the real point is people who who subscribe to these views and follow them don't end up being happier than the rest of than people who don't not necessarily it's not a cause for happiness He continues on with that for a while and then he begins to put it into perspective practically speaking and quite conceptually in fact he talks about beings again he says okay so we've talked about experiences how there arises this and that and the nature of arising and ceasing and then he says I'll skip that part he talks about how how beings how life goes he says so in the moment of conception, he goes back to this moment, because he's going to paint a picture here. He says, in that moment there is the egg from the, I think he uses the word blood. Uh, yeah, um, no, it's actually worded differently. So the union of mother and father, because there was no medical understanding back then, but union of mother and father the mother is in season and and the uh, the being who's going to be reborn but you know, this is again conceptual and this whole section is conceptual it's not meant to say hey well that means there's a soul that continues he's not talking about that anymore we've established that in ultimate reality and as a practical approach to reality experiences arise and cease but conceptually there's this being who is reborn at that moment who, who takes up the you might say the obsession with the newly formed fetus anyway so after nine months is born and becomes a child and grows up as a child and so the Buddhist analysis of childhood is interesting what is it like to be a child playing grows up playing games I mean playing is what children do right what is the consequence of playing I mean it's it builds up this worldview I mean culturally there will be cultural input uh, but sensory input and gratification playing is all about gratification really it's not to say playing is evil though you might argue that technically it is it's to say that it's it's reality a person who grows up playing as a child is going to have this mindset of gratification seeking gratification it's tempered by the fact that you realize mm, they're not just going to let me play all the time i have to do some work for it but then you work so that you can play often And he says, this person grows up and yeah, basically they're 
provide themselves with enjoyment and because because of not understanding when they see things they will lust after it if it's pleasing they will get upset about it if it's displeasing and sounds and smells and so on and then and then they suffer and so on but uh, and then there arises a Buddha and a Buddha teaches anyone who wants to call them a themselves a Buddha is someone who learns for themselves and teaches this framework this distinction the distinction between living your life getting what you want trying to get what you want and experiencing reality as it is purely and simply as it arises and ceases and he says for this person when, when, when sorry when the Buddha teaches this other people practice it this person who was caught up in chasing after what they want practices it and then they don't suffer anymore basically is what he says and then he makes a joke about sati I think it's a it's it's close to a joke. It's a play on words more than a joke. I don't know that it's fair to say the Buddha actually joked. But um he said uh, so you can understand this sutta as being called the deliverance from craving. But about sati here you the son of a fisherman, you can know that he is caught up in a vast net of craving. So that's the play on words. This fisherman has been caught up in a net of craving. It's not that big of a deal, but I think that's another reason for using the word fisherman, why they kept it in there. And it's probably just a part of the story. But And everybody was happy with what the Buddha said. I think quite reasonably. I think that's a teaching. And you'd have to read it to really know exactly what he was saying, but that was the gist of it. That consciousness is dependently, dependently arisen. And if you see these, if you don't see this, and instead you you do you f you you engage in that, then you get all messed up and mixed up, and you have to be reborn again and again and get lost again and again and suffer again and again whereas if you work it all out and see things as they are it unravels your problems disappear dissolve without clinging there is no craving and there is no suffering and that's the Mahatanha Sankhaya Sutta that's the Dhamma for tonight Thank you all for tuning in. Have a good night.